righteous will. We talked about that, um, but we have to finish out for his own glory. So I'm going to touch on that tonight, and then we will talk about the next attribute of God, which is most loving. Um, So we will pick up from um, the statement for his own glory. Uh, we're in. We're still in paragraph one of chapter two. It's toward the end of that paragraph. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're almost through the paragraph. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all around there. On the side. This isn't going to work anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you might want a different notebook, maybe. <laughs> It'll pick up once we get through chapter 2, I promise. There's just so much of, you know, the doctrine of God. We, there's a lot to discuss and work through, but, you know, also I feel like um, we're being shortchanged if we just kind of sprint through something so important. So, okay, for his own glory. Um, Jonathan Edwards in 1765 had published after his death, well, he didn't have it published, it was published, a a dissertation that he wrote called The End for Which God Created the World. Um, And in writing this, he was responding to contemporary philosophers who, um, they believed that human happiness was the end of all, that if you were happy, that every man's purpose was to achieve happiness or his own um, satisfaction in and of himself. And we hear that very much, uh, very frequently today. If you ask anybody, why are you here? If they're not a Christian, very often um, it revolves around seeking their, own, uh, seeking their own pleasure in the things of the world. Um, Jonathan Edwards in this argued extensively that God created all things to bring himself glory. That the ultimate purpose of all of creation was for God's own self-glorification. He, has, he really has an impeccable biblical defense and explains all the truths of God's um, greatest concern and purpose and all of it centers on himself. And for many people, even that statement in and of itself raises all kinds of questions and problems. So we're going to try and deal with some of those. Um, and Edwards um, taught that every other reason that God might have created um, is subordinate to this one ultimate purpose for God's own glory. Um, and that's why you hear um, in our prayers, we pray that probably more often than anything else that in anything that we pray for, we're asking God to do it ultimately to bring himself glory so that whatever the purpose behind, the subordinate purpose behind something is, a sickness, a death, a salvation of a person, ultimate purpose behind it is that, some, that God be glorified. Um, so Edwards begins by explaining um, that any notion that God created for any ultimate purpose outside his own glory is a denial of his immutability, his unchangeable nature. So Edwards wrote this. 
The notion of God creating the world in order to receive anything properly from his creature is not only contrary to the nature of God, but inconsistent with the notion of creation, which implies a being receiving its existence and all that belongs to it out of nothing. And this implies the most perfect, absolute, and universal derivation of independence. Now, if the creature receives its all from God entirely and perfectly, how is it possible that it should have anything to add to God to make him in any respect more than he was before? And so the creator become dependent on the creature. So we've discussed at length that God is dependent upon none And according to our confession, as we've already looked at, he works all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will. And so Edwards picks up on this idea and he says, God has to have created only most prominently for his own glory or else he's not immutable. He has these things to serve a purpose to him that would mean that he is not complete in himself. He needs to be influenced by other things. And, um, and so he, he denies that and says um, that, that his immutability in and of itself proves that God has created for his own glory. Um, further explanation, <clears throat> I think I handed these notes out last time. If you have them, this is a lengthy quote. You may want to follow along, but I think this is important to get, and so I'll try to work through it. Edwards provides explanation of his assertion that God's ultimate purpose in all things is his own glory when he says, if God himself be in any respect properly capable of being his own end in the creation of the world, then it is reasonable to suppose that he had respect to himself as the last and highest end in this work because he is worthy in himself to be so being infinitely the greatest and best of beings. All things else, with regard to worthiness, importance, and excellence, are perfectly as nothing in comparison of him. And therefore, if God has respect to things according to their nature and proportions, he must necessarily have the greatest respect to himself. It would be against the perfection of his nature his wisdom, holiness, and perfect rectitude, whereby he is disposed to do everything that is fit to be done to suppose otherwise. At least a great part of the moral rectitude of God, whereby he is disposed to everything that is fit, suitable, and amiable, in other words, pleasant and admirable, consists in his having the highest regard to that which is is, is itself highest and best. The moral rectitude of God must consist in a due respect to things that are objects of moral respect. That is, to intelligent beings capable of moral actions and relations. Therefore, it must chiefly consist in giving due respect to that being to whom most is due. For God is infinitely the most worthy of regard. So he goes on there, but his main argument is... God can only honor that which is the highest and the greatest of all perfection of all moral rectitude, all moral perfections. 
And so we have to come to an end at some point and say, what is that end? What is the highest and greatest good? What is the highest and greatest of all possibilities? Well, it is God himself. And God being God has to honor that which is highest and greatest and most moral and most perfect in every way. Therefore, God has to do all things for his own glory. Otherwise, God is worshiping something lesser, right? God is honoring something lesser, higher than himself, which in essence makes God a breaker of the second commandment. God would become an idolater in doing so. So all God, all, yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. Yeah, he's he's put something or someone, I guess they might say, over and above himself, which then God is worshiping something other than himself. So he's you know, he's raised on a pedestal the archangel that he now essentially worships. Um, yeah, it's uh I think when people, uh, and you'd maybe be surprised at people who want to object to this idea, um, but I think a lot of it has to do with not thinking through the logical conclusion of what that means. If God is not doing all things for his own glory and seeking in everything that he does ultimately to bring glory to himself, the problem becomes the very thing that you're dealing with in that conversation. God finds something greater than himself to um, admire and to honor and to worship. That's very problematic. <laughs> sure. Well, yeah. Yeah, right, right. It all leads to something here. Um, so y- there's some application here for us, and then I want to deal with some, uh, probably the, the primary um, uh, way that people try to avoid this. The application is very simple, being that, um, and we talk about it often, um, and maybe we talk about it too flippantly uh, sometimes. But if this is the case, then we have to realize that all things most ultimately serve to glorify God. Therefore, all things that we do, all things that we are, all things that we seek and strive to uh, become and uphold and whatever else must serve that ultimate purpose. Now, whatever the outcome of anything is, ultimately God will be glorified in it because it is part of his eternal decree. Nevertheless, we have a responsibility as God's creation. Apart from being Christians, this is, this is the responsibility of all creation. The rocks exist to glorify God. Um, that is their purpose, ultimately, um, but as Christians who are aware of this and who have a, um, a unique relationship to God, um, we all the more need to be um, recognizing our responsibility to bring glory to God. And why we look at um, um, passages um, like 1 Corinthians 10.31 so, um, so regularly to be reminded, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Um, that is so vitally important in the Christian life because it's the ultimate purpose that all things are created to serve. So let me give you some 
and literally a very small sampling, but I have a whole page of scriptural proofs uh, for this, and then I'll deal with uh, answering the question ultimately um, that is raised in all of this. Does this make God an egomaniacal megalomaniac? So I want to answer that question for us. Um, but let's first, we'll deal with the scriptural proofs. Um, I will just kind of summarize and tell you what they are because we spend the rest of the night just flipping back and forth to passages. So um, some of these are very explicit, uh, you'll hear, and others um, imply uh, this very thing that we're talking about. Um, Psalm 19.1 and Romans 1.19, if you know the arguments of those two passages, um, it's arguing that God's attributes are displayed in nature and are a declaration of his glory. Psalm 19.1 speaks of, um, and Paul picks up on this argument in Romans 1, if you want to know that God exists, go outside and look up. <laughs> the skies above, the heavens declare his handiwork. And all of this is implying that God is declaring his glory to all of creation through this. Uh, Genesis 1.26 and Isaiah 43.7, men and women were created as image bearers of God. Why? Why did God create us in his image? It wasn't just so that, um, you know, he could look at us and say, hey, there's something sort of like me down there. Um, He created us in his image for his glory, that we would be the pinnacle representation of, uh, of God's creation that displays his glory. Exodus 14.7, God intentioned the hardening of the hearts of Pharaoh and the Egyptians against Israel, and he specifically says, I will do this, I will harden their hearts, that I will be glorified for my own glory. That was his purpose in hardening their hearts and ultimately destroying them. Uh, John 9.3, we see a man was born blind in the works of God, uh, in that the works of God might di- be displayed in him. Um, you recall the disciples said this man is blind. Who's at fault? Is it him or is it his parents? In other words, who sinned here? Why is he blind? And Jesus says, that's not the issue. The issue is God wanted him to be, that he would be glorified in his works through him. Proverbs 16.4 and Romans 9.22 and 23. God created... This this is one that crawls all over people. God created the wicked for the day of trouble in order to make his glory known in their destruction. Paul says very plainly in Romans 9 that he created some as vessels of mercy that his glory would be revealed in showing them mercy. Others are created as vessels of destruction is the word he uses. So that... God would be glorified in showing his justice in destroying them in their wickedness. Um, I didn't write it. I just proclaim it. That's what the Bible says. Um, John 17, 4, Jesus glorified the Father in accomplishing what he was sent to do. Remember, John 17 is the high priestly prayer. Jesus is praying to the Father and says in that, I have done what you've called me to do to bring you glory. Um, Several passages here, Psalm 105, verse 8, Psalm 78, and verse 9 and following. 
Isaiah 43, 25, 48, 11, 60, 21, 61, 3, Romans 9, 23, and Ephesians 1, 6, and following. All of these pointing to the same um, idea here. The benefits of God's grace, namely what we would point to, Redemption, forgiveness, adoption, sanctification, all these things. All of these benefits that come as a result of our salvation, God showing his grace to us in salvation, all of these are, and Ephesians 1 is probably the most prominent place where we see this time and again, for his namesake. What do you see in Ephesians 1? In love he predestined us, and and Paul has this, Ephesians 1 is one sentence, by the way. I don't know if they, you know that. But in, he has this lengthy sentence uh, where he is going through and he's making this argument for the election of God's people. But uh, what is it, four, maybe five times he says, to the praise of his glorious grace. Over and over and over again. So we have to be careful that we not go and look at that as simply a proof text to uh, show that, yes, God elects um, some onto salvation. We believe in election. We believe in predestination. Yes, we do because the Bible teaches it. But Ephesians 1, the primary argument there is not election and adoption and predestination. The primary argument there is that God does this to the praise of his glorious grace. The primary argument is that God is doing this for his namesake, for his own glory. And that is really important to remember as we come to the text, it'll make us a lot more humble in dealing with those issues as well. Isaiah 42, 8, God does not share or give his glory to another. He, that's a quote from God himself. I will not share my glory with another. Isaiah 42, 8. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daniel seven twenty seven. Isaiah 2, 2 through 22. Malachi 1.11 and 1 Corinthians 15.24 and following. God declares that all kingdoms, all authorities, all creatures will be subjected to him and will yield to him. That's maybe a good thing for us to remember in the wake of a new inauguration, our second term of a new president. Not only are they subjected to God, whether they believe it or not, but they are also where they are as a result of God putting them there. Why? Again, for God's own glory. If you read Romans 13, as Paul is giving an argument for um, submitting to the authorities because God has given them a sword um, to bring about justice um, he's given them that authority. They're working at doing uh, their workers for good is kind of the argument Paul makes there. Why? Why is that? Why is God doing that? Ultimately, the argument seems very clear to me to be that God does that as a means to glorify himself through the administration of justice. That justice is administered through the authorities that God has appointed, and in doing so, he is glorified. Um, so that's maybe implicit there, but it seems, um, it seems nevertheless to be a part of Paul's argument. 
Uh, Psalm 115.1. The people of God on earth are already serving to bring glory to God. And as I mentioned just a, a moment ago, as the people of God, we are all the more aware of our responsibility to glorify God. And um, as the psalmist um, shows and says here that um, we're here seeking to do that. Not only are we doing that because whatever ends are made of us, that God will ultimately be glorified, but we're making a conscious effort, hopefully, as God's people, to glorify him in what we do. Um, So maybe it's worth in just a moment to talk about what that looks like Um, instead of just using that language, well, I want to glorify God. Okay, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? The psalmist is declaring God's people will bring him glory in a way that looks different from the way that other things are bringing him glory. Uh, Isaiah 2, again, Revelation 4.11 and Revelation 19.6. God will ultimately be shown to be as great as he truly is and receive glory from all his creatures. Um, I think, too, we could add to this, um, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And really pointing to this reality that there will come a day when God will be revealed as being truly as magnificent and glorious as he is. That has been obviously diminished as a result of sin, and it's been suppressed in unrighteousness, as Paul says in Romans 1. Uh, But ultimately, God will show all of creation that he is most glorious, and all men will be without excuse. Um, So the day, uh, in many ways, is yet to come. That's kind of the not yet part of our Theology, it's, it's still ahead as we await the return of Christ. Um, Isaiah 44, 6, Isaiah 48, 12, and Revelation 1, 8, and Revelation 22, 13. God is the first and the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega. So, again, here it's implicit that God... Um, God's purpose is for his own glory, but if God is the first and the last, if God is the Alpha and the Omega, what is left? <laughs> uh, nothing. <laughs> uh, there is nothing left. God is, God is all. And that's why as we go through these attributes, the confession is very clear to say that God is, um, he is all loving, all gracious, all merciful. All, um, all is sort of that... Um, part of the statement because it's dealing with this reality that he is the first and the last. There is nothing else for him to honor that is higher or greater than him. Um, Of course, uh, Romans 11.36, from God, through God, and to God are all things. Glory be to God forever. Amen. That's Paul's doxology after um, 11 chapters in Romans. Um, Ephesians 1, 5 through 6. Again, I've mentioned this. God predestined his people to the praise of his glorious grace. So predestination in and of itself has a greater purpose than simply our salvation. We like to think of it in terms of, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm a Christian. The Lord saved me. That's wonderful. And it is. It's glorious. It's wonderful. It's great. And we all rejoice in that. But the purpose ultimately is not me and you. <laughs> it's God. 
It's God in his glory. <clears throat> uh, last one, 2 Thessalonians 1.10. Upon the return of Christ, he will come to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all of those who have believed. That is a great reality. I really look forward to that. Some days more than others, but I certainly do. Um, and so we look forward. It's, you know, it's amazing that biblically we even talk about our life beyond this world. What are we, what's, what's in the golden chain of redemption? What's the next phase after sanctification? Glorification. So we even use the language. Well, what does that mean? Well, we will be glorified in that we will be made to be uh, perfect in that sense. Um, but what is all, all of our effort in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, all of our effort is a constant glorification of God. That we will in no way whatsoever, not for even a millisecond in eternity, do anything other than bring glory to God in constant perpetual worship of Christ, the Redeemer. So that day course is yet to come. So these, like I said, these are just a few, uh, only a very few uh, passages in the scriptures that either explicitly or implicitly point to the fact that God has done all for his own glory. So before I push on to dealing with the big question, um, any thoughts or questions on that? Ah, you have, you'll have notes. <laughs> They're already done. <laughs> um, well, it's what I'm going to deal with here in a moment. That to say that makes God to sound like he is egomaniacal, that he's a megalomaniac, that, um, you know, that certainly, and some will take it as far as saying, and you hear it kind of implied in statements like, well, God created man because he needed companionship. Or he was lonely and wanted fellowship among men. You hear that kind of garbage. Um, and that's what's implied in that is that, you know, ultimately God is, um, God's highest concern is not himself, it's us. It's his creation. Otherwise, he wouldn't have created it, right? Um, because he wants to, he has this longing and this desire to express his love, to express his mercy, to express his grace. So everything becomes um, a recipient of something from God as a means of God receiving joy from doing that. Believe that? Yeah, I, I don't know. I couldn't, I couldn't point to a single... Yeah, exactly. It's a philosophical assumption. I think it probably, in a more um, uh, systematized form, has probably existed in sort of academia. Um, in terms of a denomination or a body of belief, I can't think of any specifically that would. But any kind of man-centered theology really has to conclude there. Um, I think... Um, Consistent Arminianism and semi-Pelagianism, they, I, I want to be fair because they, they wouldn't say that, but the, 
Yeah, the logical conclusion of their theology really points that get, gets there. Um, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, and and really, at the end of the day, it probably would come down to a semantics thing. They would say, "Well, I don't agree with that." Here's what I believe, and in the end, it would come out sounding the very same, just with different words. <laughs> so. <coughs> Any other thoughts or questions here? All right, so is God an egomaniacal megalomaniac? That's kind of fun to say. (laughs) Um, This is something I think um, there, if you were ever interested, I probably have copies of theological journals that want to try to make this claim that what we're saying makes God out to be a megalomaniac um, and that he is um, what we're saying is ultimately God is not concerned about anybody else he's only concerned about himself and so he's the biggest um, uh, egomaniac that has ever existed Um, certainly were the desired end of any man or any woman's works their own personal exaltation, they would be considered self-centered, egomaniacal, and sinful in their self-idolatry. So let's think of it in terms of everything that God calls us to toward him. If we put that all toward me. If I came in here and I said, listen, um, you need to start praying to me. You need to start singing songs to me. Wherever you go and whoever you talk to, you need to tell them about me. All of your life needs to be centered around making the most of me. And if you don't do that, you will be punished eternally in the most excruciating, horrendous pain that you could ever imagine and beyond. You think I'd be a very popular guy at the party? (laughs) Oh, Robert Jeffress. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, a <laughs> hundred thousand. Um, so part of part of the problem here is that people really do think of God in very human terms, right? And when we get to a place where Jesus is our homeboy, um, and God is the buddy, our buddy who lives next door, um, then when we start to put all of these pieces together. He really is this guy that we really don't want to hang out with because he's always on us to, uh, to bow our knee whenever he comes in the room. Um, so if this were the case for anyone else, we'd have a really hard time with that. And we wouldn't do it, and we'd probably pick on him and beat him up a lot. But this is self-exaltation for man. But when it's placed on God, when God is self-exalting, he is concerned most ultimately 
with the one and only true God, and therefore he is delighting in the only thing that offers the fullness of truth, the fullness of beauty, the fullness of holiness. That's himself. And as I said before, if that weren't the case, then God would break his own commandment and he would be an idolater. So what appears to be egomania is actually what? It's love. It is God loving us. God exalts, God raises up and praises that which gives his creation the highest source of lasting and true joy, and he invites all of creation to follow him in delighting in what is ultimate. That's himself. So the redemptive work of God works for the benefits of God's people and brings him the greatest glory. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Notice, Peter doesn't say that he might bring us to a place where we have warm and fuzzies because we're Christians now. Didn't bring us to a place where we have a new BFF because Jesus is really cool. He did all of this for the purpose of bringing us to God. Why was the ultimate purpose to bring us to God? Because God is the end of all things. He is the greatest and the most satisfying and the most ultimate. Um, And so God, in glorifying himself, is doing for us the greatest possible good that he could do for his creation. Were God to delight in anything more than delighting in himself... He'd be an idolater. God cannot break his own law because in doing so, he would be denying his own essential character as we talked about in his attributes. So it's not a means by which to obtain that which does not rightly belong to him. And it's not a means to enslave creation uh, to that which is void of uh, any kind of value. God's self-exaltation is the most loving means by which he could uh, point to the greatest good in all of the universe. Um, Before I say any thoughts on that or any questions about any of that. Right, right. Sure. Yeah. You know, the level to which we ascribe sovereignty and 
all of these attributes to God is really the level to which we will or will not embrace this as the greatest thing that God could possibly do for us. Um, you know, if we have a small God, then what he does and why he does it is going to be very much centered on us and not him. If we have a really big God, like I hope we do and I hope we present week in and week out, um, then this seems to just make sense, that that would be the right thing. That is the greatest thing. That is That should be the greatest end for which we pursue all of life and for which God himself pursues all things. Um, I think, you know, if you... Um, John Piper took the Westminster Shorter Catechism and the first question, uh, what is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever? Well, he took that and he reworded it and he said, what is the chief end of God? To glorify God and enjoy himself forever. And um, it's, in other words, God's chief end is the same as ours, <laughs> to glorify and enjoy him and I think that is right on. And um, the, certainly the way that we need to understand God and his purposes and our purposes as well. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah. <laughs> but, if, but if you really look at it like that, you know, how loving is it that he is allowing us to worship him? You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. For a non-believer, they would never understand. No. And, and, and for some Christians, they Oh, absolutely. Understand. So, it's wonderful when you come to a place where you understand. Yeah, sure, absolutely. And no matter how smart alecky it is, it really is cyclical. <laughs> <laughs> It is about God, but he does it because he loves us. But in the end, he's being glorified as a result of it all. Um, I, I guess let's talk about for a second. When we, talk, when we say our purpose is to glorify God, um, when Paul tells us whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, what, what does that really mean? What, how do we put our arms around that and say, I am or I'm not doing this? What does that look like? Say it. Yeah, with gratitude. Sure. You know, when I pray before meals, I often pray that God would give us thankful hearts for what we're receiving. That he would make me thankful for what he has given to me. And in every, every bite of food and every drink that I take, that I'm thankful that God has provided this for me. He's given me sustenance and uh, he's, he's given me well beyond what I deserve and what I need. Um, Um, I, th- I think it's sort of a twofold thing. I hope as Christians we're thinking of that regularly. Um, as we go into something that we're considering, that that's a consideration we're making. How do I respond to this situation 
in a way that glorifies God. But the part of it that is maybe more natural for the Christian is that when we are applying his word, when we are applying the wisdom that we have, the discernment that he's given to us, and all these things, when we are living according to what the scriptures teach, we're glorifying him whether or not we've thought about that in those terms or not. So I think there's sort of a twofold thing. I want to be thinking in terms of, I want God to be glorified when I go to this job interview. But when I'm there and I'm answering questions and I tell him, you know, hey, I... I'd be happy to work six days a week, but I don't work on the Lord's day, and here's why. God's being glorified in that, whether I've given that any thought or not. Um, so I, th- I think there's, uh, there's sort of a twofold nature to that. But, you know, I, a, a while back, I, uh, this was probably five years ago or so, I really set myself to think hard about this very issue, and the kind of the day I was really digging in and studying that, I was... Uh, driving through Port Wentworth, and everyone knows what happens when you drive too fast through Port Wentworth. You get a ticket. Um, And (laughs) so as I was driving after that, I just started to think to myself, how do you get a speeding ticket to the glory of God? Um, What does that look like? And so it was a good exercise for me to think through. If Paul says, what's that? Yeah. If Paul says, do all things to the glory of God, surely that includes, you know, when I, I get busted for doing something I shouldn't have been doing. Um, how do I do that? Um, you know, and to me that looks like I'm not, uh, I'm not arguing and throwing a fit. I'm not lying about the true condition of what was going on. I'm honest about it. I receive it humbly. I'm repentant. Um, all of those things are tied into that. Um, as opposed to doing what the world does and saying, you know, well, I want to see your laser and I don't think it's been calibrated and yada yada. Give me a break. I was speeding. Yeah. <coughs> That's, yeah. It's manipulation. <laughs> right. Sure. Well, and I think, you know, I think as we, that's a great point, but as we think about it, we think in terms of, you know, when we say that God can do all things. But there's obviously a qualifier there, as we talked about several weeks ago. There are things God can't do. Those are the things that deny his essential character, his nature, all of that. So in the same way, the things that we can't do to the glory of God are the things that deny what he has told us. And, yeah, and deny his glory. Yep. So I know we can't sin to the glory of God. Mm-hmm. But if God created all things for his glory. God is glorified through our sin. Yes. Is that what you're going to say? Yes. No, because then you're taking out man's responsibility. And um, we can't, that's, the Bible doesn't afford us <laughs> the right to remove ourselves from any responsibility. But I, yeah, I understand where that could go, um, but we have to keep the tension tight. What's that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I really want to get to this. 
let's spend a few minutes on it. We'll see how far we get. Uh, we have like three minutes left. Okay, the next section is dealing with more of God's attributes. And it's all of this up to the next semicolon. Most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Um, So we're going to deal with each of these, but nowhere near to the extent that we've dealt with his other attributes because um, in one way or another, all of these are going to come up in other chapters of the confession. So, um, but I think they're all necessary to at least have a working definition of what we mean when we say God is most loving. Um, And wrapped up in that is the statement from 1 John that God is love. So we have to work from there in order to get into the other parts of what we'll be dealing with in the same regard in the rest of the confession. Um, So most loving. Now God expresses his goodness toward creation through his love. Um, By definition, um, since the attributes of God are explaining his total essence, uh, God is most loving, so he not only loves, but as John says, he is love itself. Um, Since God is absolutely good in himself, and remember, everything we say about God is speaking in terms of absolutes. Um, He's absolutely good in himself, Therefore, his love cannot find any satisfaction in any object that falls short of absolute perfection. And this kind of talks back into what we were just saying. He he loves his creatures for his own sake. Or to say it otherwise, he loves in them himself, his virtues, his works, and his gifts. So God loves us because, sorry to break it, not because I am who I am or you are who you are. God loves us because we are created in his image. He loves that we are image bearers of his. Whenever God acts toward creatures, it is out of a complete satisfaction that he already enjoys in his Trinitarian nature. Um, Stated, uh, Michael Horton stated it like this. I think is very good. The eternally begotten Son lives from the love of the Father, but the Father is such because He has a Son, and in the Spirit, the Father and the Son not only have a third person to love, but one who loves them in return and brings sinful creatures into that circle of the loving fellowship. It's an excellent way of describing how we fit into this inter-Trinitarian love. So God did not create us because he needed fellowship or companionship. He already had that in and of himself as a Trinitarian God. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are eternally loved by one another as God himself. And we are introduced into that by the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration. Um, So, three aspects of God's love, and then we'll be done for the night. God is, uh, God's love can be described as benevolence. These are kind of building on each other. So, God's goodwill 
and God's attitude toward his creation is a kindness that all human beings benefit from. Um, God does not withdraw his love completely from even the most hardened sinner in his present sinful state, even though that sin is a complete abomination to God. Um, So it's limited, but even the enemies of God enjoy the benefits of life as his creatures within his creation. God loves in perfect freedom, so he loves even those who do not return his love. Indeed, he loved us eternally even when we were his enemies, as Paul tells us in Romans 5.10. So God's benevolence is a, a type of love that God has for all of his creation, and specifically as we talk about it, we're really talking about about mankind, whether mankind loves him back or not. Um, It is a benevolence that God gives regardless of the response. From there, we look at God's beneficence. Not only does God have good will toward creation, he often expresses that love in deeds of kindness. He gives gifts to the righteous and to the unrighteous, and he makes it rain upon them equally, is what Jesus says in Matthew 5. He makes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous, is the way he describes it. So when the Christian farmer, uh, the Christian farmer enjoys eternal uh, communion with God, and that's true and wonderful, um, but just because he is a Christian farmer doesn't mean that his crops have any advantage over his neighbor who's a non-Christian. And so by that, we see that God's beneficence is shown, his love in that these benefits of God's love are shown to both believers and non-believers. So we have benevolence, which is God's goodwill toward his cre- creation, his beneficence, which are his deeds of love and kindness, uh, but then we have a love which we call, um, which is maybe a little odd because of how we're used to using the word, but it's his love of complacency. God's love for his redeemed people is a special kind of love since he contemplates them, and that's why we use complacency, he contemplates them as his spiritual children in Christ. Um, it is to them that he communicates himself in the fullest and richest sense with all the fullness of his grace and mercy. So God loves his people in a way that he doesn't love other people. He communicates, reveals himself to us in a way that is not revealed to others. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. He illumines the scriptures that we can see and know and behold great things about him that if we were to tell a non-believer Um, all of the ways that we are changed by that truth, they would be hardened. So all of those things are at play there. So now most Christians, the vast majority of Christians, are never going to deny God's benevolence and God's beneficence. Many are going to deny that he has some special love for the elect that goes beyond his love for all of mankind. As what do we hear so often in evangelism or in anything that people tell non-believers? God loves you. Is that true in a sense? Yes, it is. 
but we can't say that in a way that denies that God has a particular love for his people. A denial of God's love varying between persons is very odd because as man created in God's image, we express the same type of love in our relationships. And in fact, it is commanded in scripture that we do so. Let me give you an example. No one's love for their enemy, for their neighbor, for their children, and for their spouse is the same across the board. Uh, Nor should it be. That would be really weird. (laughs) If I love my neighbor's wife in the same way that I love my own wife, I have a feeling we'll be having a fist fight in the front yard. (laughs) It becomes very problematic. They will too, yeah. (laughs) Um, If my love for my own children does not exceed the love that I express for your children, um, there is a big problem there. The love is diminished. It's really meaningless. Um, Likewise, Christ will love his bride with a special love. He will love his church. And that is implied in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. In all of this argumentation that we have in Paul saying, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Paul doesn't say, love your wives in the way that Christ loves everybody. No, love your wives with a special love that gives you um, a responsibility toward her that is a responsibility you don't have toward others, a type of love that doesn't exist anywhere else in any other relationship. Um, And God will love his children. Likewise, whom he purchased through the blood of his own son, because that marriage relationship is simply a reflection of what God is doing in his love for his children. So, um, we're way out of time, so I'll stop there. Benevolence, beneficence, and complacency in that he contemplates us in a different way than he does mankind. Beneficence, B-E-N-E-F-I-C-E-N-C-E. Did you get it? Good work. It's all that Latin, you know. (laughs) All right, any uh, closing thoughts or comments? I guess thoughts and comments are the same. Questions? Yeah. Um, but really, at the end of the day, that it, that's what it is. It's man-centeredness. Is that when, when you know, I start doing this, it's because I'm inserting myself into the center role. I'm the center stage. I am the, the main actor, the main character. I'm the protagonist of the story. Mm-hmm. Instead of all of us being the antagonists that are trying to take God's path. Right. Yeah. Mm. 
sure. Yeah, it's a great point. The, the argument against God's sovereignty, in, particularly in salvation, comes to this issue of God's love. And it come, it's usually presented in a very emotional way to say, you mean to tell me that God doesn't love my dad, who's not a Christian, as much as he loves me? Yes, that's what I'm telling you. That's what the Word's telling me. And ultimately, at the end of the day, that's, um, that's exactly what we're saying. And so, then the follow-on is, and then you mean to tell me that I can't do anything about that? Well, in the ultimate sense, no, but what you can do is what God tells you to do, and that's present the gospel and let the gospel do the work that it does and trust that God will do what's greatest uh, for his own glory. Yeah. Sure but we recognize where God's means to do that if he so desires and we don't shrink back and just say, well, God's going to do what he's going to do and he hates my dad and he loves me, so wonderful. Um, it doesn't work that way. That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, and he's speaking there of God's beneficence, of actually his display of love through good good deeds of um, kindness, I guess, and his love of complacency for the elect. That's great. All right. Well, let me uh, let me close, and we'll be dismissed for tonight. Actually, Josh, you want to pray for us? Yes. Thanks.